Lord, you're a good, good father. That's who you are. And we say, blessed be your name. May you align our hearts, as the old hymn would say, to see, to hear, to do your will. Uh, Father, may we hear your word and take it to heart. May it change our thinking, eventually work it through so it, it affects our, our emotional sense of who we are, the, the soul, the, the body, the soul, and the spirit, that ultimately our actions make sense because we're living according to your word. We pray. Enlighten us through the truth of your word, we pray in Jesus' name. The church says amen. Amen. I'm in 2 Corinthians chapter 10 this morning. 2 Corinthians 10. If you have a New Testament, 2 Corinthians chapter 10. We'll look at the first five verses. But you know, when you were made, God says this about when humans were made. Genesis, the very beginning of the Bible, the beginning of human history. God created mankind, man and women, in his own image. It says in his own image he created the male and female. Uh, now, that doesn't look like much, but that's a big deal, that he made you male and female. You're one or the other. In fact, those were maybe the first words you heard. Now, you wouldn't know that because you were like seconds old, but the first words you were, would have heard outside the womb were, oh, it's a boy, oh, it's a girl. I told you it would be a girl. I knew it would be a boy. It, but that's your, your identity right there. And the fact that you are designed by God, male and female, but in the image of who he is. It's an amazing thing. And another amazing thing is that our bodies, when they're, they're made by God, our bodies, it, it's, a, it's a crazy thing. They heal. Have you ever noticed that? They heal. You could, you could cut yourself on a knife in the kitchen. You're preparing breakfast or dinner or whatever it is you're preparing with a sharp knife. Oh, ding yourself, and it'll heal in a few days. I'm, I'm in the garage, and I'm working, and I, you ever done this, where you, you have a wrench, but you, you strip past, and you, you rack your knuckles. Oh, that hurts. So, can I get a witness, right? And you yell, oh, glory. That's what I, that's what I say. Oh, oh, glory. Man, that hurt. Whoa. And you, it's just bleeding all the way across. I can't go in the house because my wife will say, what were you doing? I say, I can't. And then she wonders why I'm wearing a glove for a few days. I'm kind of doing a Michael Jackson thing for a while. Just one glove. But then eventually it'll heal. My lawnmower, when it breaks, it's never healed. Ever. It could sit there for a year. It won't heal. But my hand, I can rack my hand, and it'll eventually heal. The body is an amazing thing. And then that's just skin. That's not even inside the body of what's happening in the systems of the body. Today what I want to talk with you about is the mind. We're in a three, this is the third week of a of a series called Mind Matters, because inside the head, what's going on inside the head? Interesting bit of science here. Our brains have left and right hemispheres. There's a side to your brain, and, and we're divided. How many of you are left-handed people? How many of you are right-handed people? Yeah, how many ambidextrous? How many have no idea what ambidextrous means? <laughs> yeah. I had a friend a long time ago who was an FBI agent, and I always wondered that. I, how do you shoot from behind a building? You're looking around, but what if you're the other hand, you'd have to come out like that. And he goes, yeah, they teach you to shoot with both hands from either side. So you're not just the left side of a building. It's call a guy in for the right side. No, no you can shoot either hand. I go, you know, I could probably learn to shoot with the other, but my eye isn't very good, so I would still hang out. He goes, yeah, yeah, that's what's called a former officer. <laughs> <laughs> I 
I think I'll stay in the ministry and not go into FBI work. It's, it's amazing, though, how you can train the left and the right. You have a strength side and a weak side of your body. You know that. You have it with a leg and with an eye and with a hand, and, and you are fearfully, wonderfully made. Our brains are divided into two sides, and the left and the right, there's a thin material, just paper thin, called the corpus callosum, and it divides as a tissue that divides the sides of the brain, but allows the sides of the brain to talk, which allows then logic to talk to emotion, which allows energy then to talk to the system side of your brain. And we've already learned that from weeks gone by that there are millions, hundreds of millions of neurons working at lightning speed, and they perform functions of thinking, reasoning, comparing, sensing, smelling, listening to music in the background. All this is happening at, at super fast speed. You're doing that without even thinking about it, and then occasionally you stall out and you have a brain freeze, and just for a moment you can't think of something, then you, you go to bed at night, and when you wake up the next morning, it comes to you. And that's the, the mind resting and kind of rebooting, and it's going into long-term memory. There are amazing things about the mind that we're learning. But what I want to talk about today is just even from infancy, when a baby is born, the first 18 to 24 months, you hold that baby and carry that baby, and, and that development is critical. It doesn't seem like it much, but swaddling the baby, touching, um, the voice assurance, even when a daddy, just that, the, the skin difference of a daddy, the, the five o'clock shadow and the mom, you need a dad and a mom, you need the deep voice and the, the treble and the bass, but you need the caring for that, you need to have that assurance. That's all development of the brain happening too. That's not just, oh, we're just taking care of the baby. No, that's not what just is happening. What we're finding is there, there is, um, there's a neuroplasticity, there's an elasticness to your brain. And it's making those connections side to side. The more you handle a child, you're helping develop personality. And psychiatrists tell us today that, that children that get held more end up doing better and they're handled more and personality develops differently. There's nurturing, feeding, caring. And that all helps the child. And the more we study this, the more we begin to see what God has done that is beyond our understanding of the wisdom. We think that we're holding and patting and caring for a baby, but what we're really doing is helping raise the whole next generation of thinkers, processors, compassionate caregivers, and, and more. We are, it's a marvelous thing that's happening. The left side of your brain is developing this integral map of, as it learns itself, it acquires this visual orientation, uh, kind of a visuospatial orientation, is learning nonverbal cues, gains holistic sense of, of of, of sense of being. It has a social, emotional context to it. The other side of your brain, the, the right half has the four L's, they're called uh, language, linear, uh, logical, and literal. And, and those four L's then, are, it's kind of the, the logic side, the thinking side. And kids grow just like their feet, their nose, their ears, their eyes. They all grow at different speeds, at different rates. And some of us have children, and some of us are still undeveloped in some areas. They just never grew in that section of your life, you know. Um, and, and it's because of what's happening inside the brain. It's like that, it's like that little kid who just says to, to you, why, Dad, why? why? Why, Dad, why, why? Dad, tell me why. I don't, I don't get it, Dad, why? To which we say, go ask your mother. I don't, I don't know either. I'm all out. I, I gave you like five answers to the why, and I'm out of answers to the why. And then it occurs to you later, it isn't that they care why, they just didn't want to go to bed right? Or how about that little 
child who's at home, it's spring break from school, and they're, they're in school, and grandma comes on spring break, and she's loving on her little granddaughter, and she kneels down, and her nice little grandmother voice says, oh, I just love you, you just remind me so much of your mother, you're so sweet, I'll bet you're smart. How's school going? And the daughter says, I, I, don't, I don't go to school. What? I'm not, I'm not in school. Why? Well, because she's in the house. She's not in school. So, so how are you doing? I'm, I'm not in school. You, you're not in school? And then, of course, as soon as the little, little girl's out of the room, what do you mean she's not in school? She says she's not going to school. What's going on here? Do I have to take over as a grandmother? I'll parent her if you can't be a better parent than this. I knew you'd never be a good parent. Off goes the grandmother into that. And what's happened is you've gotten a literal response to a very non-literal question. But the child gave you that very literal response. Why? Because the crossover isn't complete yet. They're just going to tell you. And, and that happens with you a hundred times in a day and you don't even realize it's happening. Combine all that with the brain with then this nature, what we talked about before, the nature of every human being to sin. And so there's depravity immersed in all the logic. There's depravity immersed in all the emotion, all the relationships, all the connections, all the math, all the language, everything that's happening. Sin has profoundly affected every corner of our hearts and lives. And the only rescue is the Savior Jesus who would come. And if he doesn't invade that life, that life will never reach its full potential and will always be frustrated and will always look out for number one because that will become the king of their life, but will never be what God wanted them to be because Christ isn't on the throne. And there's a, there is a, a mental, emotional thing happening at the same time. I love the quote of Booker T. Washington, um, one of the scientists, educators, a hero of mine. He, he put it this way, I, I shall never allow myself to stoop so low as to hate any man. I love that. He's saying, if that's your problem, you hate me, I will never allow myself to emotionally engage and waste mental space on hating you. It's a waste of energy. It's a waste of space. You see, here's what happens. Thinking comes, if you get this, thinking is the start of the process if you're writing on an equation, and you write an arrow if you're taking notes, and that affects feelings, and then those feelings then eventually affect action. And here's what we do. We do this all the time. We do it at home, and, and pastors do this with churches. We address the action. You need to do better. But if all you ever do is do better, you never address what prompted the bad action, which is a bad feeling, which came from a bad thought. It's like snipping off the top of the weeds in the yard. The weeds will come right back because you never got to the root of the issue. See? So the better thing to do is not only address what's happening in the action, but find out what's the feeling you're associated with and where did that come from in the thinking stage. Because thinking will prompt feeling, which will then prompt um, action, and that action will become, as we'll see, a stronghold. 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 1. By the humility and gentleness of Christ, I appeal to you. I, Paul... I'm timid when face to face with you, but bold toward you when away. I beg you that when I come, you may not have to be as bold as I expect to be towards some people who think we live the standards of this world. Verse 3. For though we live in the world, we do not wage war as the world does. The weapons we fight with are not the weapons of the world. 
On the contrary, they have divine power to demolish strongholds. And we demolish strongholds. Get this. We demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. And we take captive every thought, get that, every thought to the obedience of Christ. You see, many Christians today are, we, we've trained ourselves out. We are not trained in the mind. We've trained ourselves physically and educationally, but we've not really trained the mind because we didn't know there has to be a mind shift that takes place. A mind shift from thinking just about myself and my own depravity. But instead, what would God do with this? What would Jesus do if he were here? How do I make, this is the question, how do I make my mind mind? There it is. By the humility and gentleness of Christ, Paul writes, I'm appealing to you. He's saying, I'm, I'm coming as gently as I can. Why? Because these are tough words to say. And coming to you softly doesn't mean I, I'm, I'm weak. It doesn't mean this is optional. It doesn't mean I'm unsure of myself. I am sure. And when you get it in print, but you don't get it with my personality, he says, when, when I'm away, the timidity goes away. Then you see me as bold. Isn't that the truth? You do know that the case. When someone tells you something and you can see their face and you get a better understanding of what they're communicating, it's a more holistic sense of communication. When it's just in writing, man, alive. It just seems cold and calculated. It seems too bold, too stiff. So he's saying, I, I really want to come to you gently, but I do want you to take this seriously. I beg you, verse 2, when I come that I may not have to be as bold as, as you might expect toward the people who think that they live by the standards of this world. It's just not going to work, he's saying. Why? He said, I want to be gracious in my approach, but I don't want you to think of me as weak, and I want to be strong with my words, but I don't want my words to be so strong that you think I lack humility, because here's the deal. I'm going to tell you something you don't want to hear. You do not want to hear it. And when you don't want to hear it, you tend to not hear it. You say, well, he, he offended me in the way he said that. Well, yeah, but is it the truth? That's the question. And what would it take for you to hear the truth and not be offended? Because quite honestly, we don't want to hear what we don't want to hear. When we talk about love and joy, we're all over that. But when we approach a topic like holiness or perseverance, oh my gosh, he's being mean. He's being tough. Well, it's because it's hitting us. It's hard on us. Hard on me. And so we want to be gentle in our language, but we want to make sure that we're respectful, but we want to make sure, too, that we communicate the truth. And that's how we approach the mind shift. And why is that so difficult? It's so difficult because, verse 3, for though we live in the world, we don't wage war like the world wages war. It's a different war. The weapons we fight with are not the weapons of, the, of this world. On the contrary, they have divine power. They have divine power to demolish strongholds. Understand, this is a war. Long before you showed up, God in heaven is at war with Satan. And Satan is headed towards hell, the lake of fire, and there is a spiritual conflict headed between the two. And we are in between that, and you have to decide what side you want to be on. And that war is not like any other war. It is not a physical war. You don't wage the war the way the world does, what the text is telling me. So if you think you can go into this conflict and you think, oh, I can manage my way through it and get it done my way, you're doomed already because this is mega war here. This is huge galaxy war. And it is invisible conflict. It is at the thinking level. It's at the idea stage. It's not with the weapons of this world. If you're taking notes, jot down John chapter 8, verse 44, where Jesus um, says about Satan, Satan, you are a liar 
And in fact, your native tongue is lying. In fact, the way you talk is lying. When you open your mouth, if your lips are moving, you're lying. How do you know when he's lying? If his lips are moving, he's lying. He is a liar. It's his native tongue. It's who he is. It's what he does. Not long ago, I was out car shopping with a daughter, and we've taught our kids, you know, tell the truth, and then expect people to tell you the truth. You know, we just have dealt with truth all our lives. Now we're going on a car lot. If you're a car dealer, sorry. Here we go. I'm trying to coach her. We're going to get on a car lot. They're just going to tell you what you want to hear. Okay, Dad. Okay, okay. I'm not sure you're getting this. Um, you know, is this car warranty? Oh, yeah, it's warrantied. Oh, yeah, it's good all the way to the time you hit the street. It is warranted. I'll even write you a note. I'll even give you a phone number. Not mine, but I'll give you a phone number. You can call. You know, I needed to get good mileage. This one gets great mileage. Just the best one in the lot. Well, I like that car. Black is nice, but I'd rather have a navy blue. Oh, this one gets even better mileage. I thought you said that one got the best mileage. Oh, this one's even better. This one's even better. It's got two doors, but I really wanted four doors. You can get four doors. You can add four doors later. You can do that. You can, it's just an upgrade. Not a problem. Not a problem. They just, and it's not that they're lying. You know what they're doing? They're trying to sell cars. You understand this? They're hungry. So they don't view themselves as liars. They view themselves as hungry. I've got to sell a car. So buy the stinking car. And I'm trying to tell them that. But they're just overwhelmed. You know, all the information is conflicted. And I said, this is why we shop. And then we say, we need time. And if they don't get that, we just say, you know what? We need time to think about it. And if they don't understand that, then I pull out the religious card. Then I go, oh, you know what? We don't make big decisions like this. This is true. Without praying about it. Do, 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 do. You know, they go, oh, my gosh, look it out. We have a holy roller. <laughs> not really. No, you obviously don't know me. I just need time to think about it, because then we get off the lot, and then they go, you know, that guy lied to me. But you have to get away from the situation. Now they're mad. I said, yeah, now you're feeling it. Now you know, who do I want to do business with? You've been to four dealers. Who's telling you the truth? Who's going to, and who's going to sell you a car? You can afford, you can buy, but won't fall apart. And there's no guarantee in life, but what's the best chance of this? And you know what? Don't call them a liar. Just say they're hungry. But there's no question about it. John 4, uh, 4, uh, 44, 8, 44. He is a liar and his native tongue is lying. Satan will sell you a bill of goods, anything to get you off the mark. Get this. And he'll get you to, to take a little bit of sin knowing I'll get more later. I know he won't go out and do that, but I'll get him to do a little bit of this and a little bit of that and a little bit of this, and a little bit of that. And eventually, we'll get him over to where I want him. See? And he does it with just little lies. He is not a fool. We think him to be stupid, but he is not. This is not a typical war. It is invisible in the realm of the thinking, and it's fought with different weapons. These weapons are not obvious to us. You cannot win this conflict with human ingenuity, rationalization, any kind of splashiness, thinking that great rhetoric, I can talk my way out, showmanship, charm, charisma, it doesn't really matter. Proverbs 15, verse 14, the discerning heart seeks knowledge, but the mouth of a fool feeds on folly. It feeds on folly. 
This is a different kind of war with different kind of weapons because it is a divine war. It is a divine conflict. We are in over our heads. This divine conflict is between Satan and God the Father in heaven. We already know who's going to win, but Satan wants to take down casualties in the process, and so he will take you if he can. So you have to be aware that, that he will lie to you at every point he can. And once he does, the scripture says, he will have a stronghold. Go back to verse 4. The very end of the verse, that, the, that you demolish the stronghold. What is a stronghold? It could be a couple different things. It could be a worldview, and it can also be an attitude. A stronghold is anything that just has you clamped down. A, a stronghold could be a worldview, any of the isms, like materialism, hedonism, Darwinism, secularism, relativism, it just keeps going. Communism, atheism, all of these just add up to, to being against the knowledge of God. They all buck up against it. But that, it, it doesn't have to be that. That could be a stronghold but it could be something else. That may not attach to you. But I tell you, if that doesn't attach to you, this will. And that's the personal side. This is the personal attitude. A stronghold in your life could be an attitude, like Satan wants you to believe a lie that you will keep it, it will drain the energy out of your life. Like revenge, distrust, anxiety, fear, worry, arrogance. It just, he'll just put a little bit in, fan the flame of that, and it just takes over your life, and it becomes a stronghold, becomes a driver for your life. So how do you deal with that? Verse 5, you demolish the strongholds, and you demolish those arguments, and every pretension, so you go to the thinking level, that's all the arguments, the thinking level, and anything connected to it, the pretensions. Get that? That sets itself up against the knowledge of God. So if you don't put it up against the, how does it make me feel, or what do my friends do, or what else is happening, or what's acceptable. No. What is happening here, what is opposed to the knowledge of God, what are the pretensions that could take me down? I have to demolish that. Secondly, we take every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. It has to be to the obedience of Christ. So the first thing we do is demolish the arguments. This is all about thinking. It's all about... It's an argument, a path that will eventually lead you to that emotion. If you believe a little bit of the lie, you'll begin to emotionally attach to the lie. It becomes part of your identity. Then you will eventually act on it. You have to demolish them, which you, know, you can look it up in dictionaries and go back and do word studies. Demolish means tear it up, blow it out, get it out, just get it gone. And you don't give any safe haven. You don't give any little bit of room for the argument to stay. You don't give it any thought place. You kick it out. And some of us need to do that verbally. You just say, I'm done with worry. I am done. This, is, this has got to go away. And then you have to replace it with something else we'll talk about in just a moment. So you have to pay attention to what the world even pours into you because they'll give to you little bits of sin, little bits of slyness, and they'll do that knowing that eventually, we do this 10, 20, 30, 40 times in a day, you'll bite on a couple of those, two or three. And, and the way I see it happens all the time is in situation ethics. It happens all the time in drama on TV. It's a situation ethic where they're, they're, they're saying this is against this, against that, getting you to think. And you know what? Every option out there is sinful. But they're getting you to pick one, and it's the least evil one, but it still has evil in it. I love comedy. I love to laugh. It sure beats crying, right? Like I love stupid stuff. Like it's a dad joke. Like this February March, 
I don't know about April, May. What kind of sick people think these things? I just, I think that's funny. You don't think it's funny? Tomorrow, some of you will go, <laughs> you'll, you'll be on a bus going into work. <laughs> people, what is wrong with you? Well, yeah, February does not march. Never mind. I love, com- I love to laugh, but you know what? Comedy oftentimes will lace in it bits of stuff that's wrong, and they'll make you then begin to laugh at things that are plain wrong, sinful, wicked. Psalm 101, if you're taking notes, verse 3. I will not look with approval on anything that is vile. I will not look with... I've got to come in my head. I'm going to stay there. The English Standard Version calls it anything that is worthless. The King James says, I, version says this, I will set no wicked thing before my eyes. That's pretty plain. I will not let this stay in my head. So you demolish the arguments. Secondly, you take captive every thought. You hold it captive. Now, I, I shouldn't be preaching this because you should know what taking captive is. When you take something captive, you disarm it. You take away the weapon, and then you, you subdue. You handcuff them, rope them up. You do something to contain the enemy, right? You control them. Any force that's taken captive, you neutralize them, you take the weapons, and then you control, confine, and then you give them unlimited, you, you give them this kind of very limited freedom while you hold them down. And they're... The word pictures this are really obvious even from modern day. We do it with military today and police. It's, it's called interrogation. You find out where the offender is, you bring them in, and then you begin to ask and look at it from different perspectives, and then you say, I'm going to ask tougher questions, and if you don't tell me, I'll get the truth down the hall, and then you get the truth one way or another out of them. That's, the, that's taking every thought captive, and you break down this offender, until you get the truth out of them. And that's what you have to do with the sin that's in your head. You've got to break it down and go, where did this come from? How did this get in? What was the source? How can I shut the door on that now so it doesn't come back? You have to do that. It's the science, really, of observations, what it is. But it doesn't happen just with military. It doesn't happen um, uh, just with police forces and interrogation. It happens in surgery, medical world, all the time. You do know a surgeon is part, you know, highly skilled you know, devoted, you know, committed to the welfare of mankind. But there's a part of a surgeon that's a tinkerer. You know this, right? And you, if you've been into surgery, you know this. You go into surgery and something happens and you, they have to open you up and then they come back and they say, yeah, we, while we were in there, that's how it starts. Yeah, yeah, while we were in there, yeah, we took a look at your kidneys. They look pretty good. You were, what? Oh, yeah, yeah, we had your colon out, out on the table. It was, it was cool, man. You took, What? No wonder I feel so jumbled. Yeah, well, yeah, it looked good, though. It was pink and healthy. Who else saw my colon? Well, there's a bunch of us around the table. But you didn't seem to mind. We asked you, you know, do you mind if we look at your colon? You didn't seem to object. Well, I was asleep. How would I know? So how many people saw? Well, six, but this is a school. It's a medical with a... So there's an upper tier, another half a dozen kids. Kids? Kids were looking at my kidneys? Yeah, and your spleen looks really healthy, too. You understand what a surgeon is, is he's not only good at cutting stuff out, but he's a, he is a master at the science of just plain observation. And you know what he's looking for? He's looking for, is there a dead part? Something happening to that liver? 
Is there something happening to the colon? Is there a, is there a, a bulge in the colon that's going to tr cause trouble later? We should take that now. Is there some, a piece of cancer in there? Because we're going to cut it out now. And, and what makes a great surgeon is not just the ability to cut, but it's the ability to observe and think as he works or she works her way through. You have to do that with your sin. You have to take it out and lay it on the table and pull the light down and say, okay, where did this come from and how did it get here? And you have to be cruel to the sin that you nurse, that you hold on to. And when you see it with the sinfulness that God does, and you bring it, thirdly, to obedience with the word of God, and you don't ask yourself, how does that sin make me feel? Or what do my friends think about it? Or could I have a little bit of this and be okay? You can't ask that question. What you're asking is, does it obey what Jesus would do? Do I bring it in obedience to Jesus Christ? Is this an attitude that Jesus would have? Well, I don't know. Well, then I'm going to have to cut it out. Is this an action that Jesus would have? Is this, is this a thought that Jesus would have? Well, no, then it has to go. So first thing you do is you demolish the arguments. Blow them up, dismantle them, bring them captive, hold them down. And, and then when you're done with that, then you ask yourself, is this obedience to Jesus Christ? Because if it's not, it's got to go away. It just has to go away. And, and when you kick it off, when you get it gone, you have to replace it quickly with something productive. I'm, I'm, we're going to come to that in just a moment. But you, you can't just kick out the bad stuff. You have to replace it. And those of you who have been through cancer treatment know this. We'll cut out cancer. We'll do all that kind of stuff. But then it's called replacement therapy. And that's exactly what the Bible recommends too. But you may not understand replacement therapy. So how many of you, I'll just illustrate it this way. How many of you have a kitchen table at home? Okay, I would have expected more people but that's okay. So you have a kitchen table at home. Those of you who don't have a kitchen table at home, but a kitchen table at home is what we call a horizontal space. We all know what horizontal spaces are for. They're for stuff to be set down on, right? Isn't that what kitchen tables are for? When was the last time you had breakfast at your kitchen table? Well, there was no room. Well, because people brought stuff in and dropped it, and then they didn't hang up their coat. They just threw it on the chair, and, and then uh, someone brought you know, something in from the neighbor, and then there's some mail. And if you don't sort the mail, mail, I'm convinced, reproduces overnight. Does it not? <laughs> hey, we had 10 pieces of mail. We have 40 this morning. Where does this come from? It just, it just propagates. It just, it, you know. And so that flat service will just collect stuff, right? And so in our house, at the Huffman house, every so often at our kitchen table, we just get to the point we can't even find. We don't even know what color it is anymore. We'd like to see the wood of our table. So we call what we call family gathering. Wanda calls it coming to Jesus. Because if, if you don't come to this meeting, you will meet Jesus. <laughs> so we, we come to the table. Whose is this? Take it now. And if they, well, I don't want it. Well, then it goes to the trash. I want it. You know, they want it. It's coming off the table. You ever had this where you buy stuff and you come home, but you're so tired? It's Christmas season. This just happened Christmas season. You just drop the bags in the, and they're still there like three days later. But under it is two days of mail and a UPS delivery that someone didn't ever, and never told you about. But you, you're still ticked because you don't have a UPS delivery. What is wrong with them? Like, why can't they deliver? Oh, yeah, I meant to tell you. It's been there like a week. Yeah. Because there's so much stuff on the table. So once you clear it, then you hand it all off. And then, and then it's gone, and it's, it's clean. What happens three days later? 
You're walking by. What's your table like? Well, it has like 12 days of mail on it. How did that happen? Because it's a horizontal surface. You have to do replacement therapy. In, in your head, by the way, your brain is a kitchen table. It's a horizontal surface. And you can clean it all off. And if you don't intend to putting the stuff away and getting it gone, it'll clutter up again. I mean, faster than you think it could. So what you have to do is you have to, you have to as soon as you clean it off, you have to do a replacement therapy, which is put healthy stuff, right stuff in its place. And if you don't, bad stuff will come right back. Uh, if you don't believe me, just think of this in, in biblical terms. Galatians chapter 5, let me just give you some illustrations of this. Uh, Galatians 5, there's a destructive pattern Paul writes about, and then he says, don't do the de destructive, instead do the constructive pattern. The same passage in Ephesians chapter 4. Don't be like babies. In other words, grow up in your faith. Learn to be loving. Speak the truth in love. And what does he say? You have to put off falsehood. You have to clear the table of falsehood, and you have to put on truth. Ephesians 4. Philippians 3 and 4. You have to watch out for the dogs. Defend yourself. That's clearing the table of the bad stuff. And then think about these things. That's the good stuff. Colossians chapter 3. You, he, he explains it like taking off garments. He says you have to take off the ungrateful spirit, the bad stuff about your life, undress that, and put on the new man, the new woman in Christ. Ephesians chapter 5. Be careful then how you live, not as unwise but as wise. Making the most of every opportunity. Why? Because the days are evil. It's going to come after you. Therefore, don't be foolish. Understand what the Lord's will is. Don't get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery. Don't do that. He said, instead, be filled with the Spirit. You know how a drunk guy walks, thinks, talks, logic, the whole bit. Don't be that way. Instead, when you walk in a room, they go, that's a Spirit-filled person. Why? Because he walks, he talks, he, he thinks differently. He thinks like the Holy Spirit does. Speaking to one another in psalms, hymns, spiritual songs, Singing, making music in your heart to the Lord. So what you have to do is this. You clear your mind of the bad stuff and then replenish it with the good stuff, which is the psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. And it says, speak to one another. Who is the one closest to you? Do you know who your closest, the person closest to you is? It's you. So you have to speak to yourself in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. You have to sing and make melody in your heart to the Lord because if you don't, ungratefulness will come back in. It's just that simple. Now, I'm going to close by telling you what I do. And I'm not there yet, but I'm telling you what I do to clear the table. And here's the replacement therapy I use. When I am afraid, Psalm 56. When fear strikes me, I will trust in you. It's the verse I quote. By the way, you, you, that's the replacement therapy is to get a verse get a new mindset, a new frame of work, of mind, frame of mind. That's the shift that's happening here. So when I'm afraid, I'm going to trust in you, in God whose word I praise, in God who I trust, and I'm not going to be afraid. What can mortals, mere mortals do to me? What can people do? I get that in perspective of just how good, how great God is. Puts my eyes back on him, see. Um, just happened to me a few weeks ago. Two weeks ago, I was... Worried about stuff, couldn't sleep, stomach upset. That's where it affects me. Not a good place to be. Then I get jumpy and I worry. And Isaiah chapter 26, you will keep him in perfect peace whose mind has stayed on him, steadfast on him. Why? Because he trusts in you. That's the scripture I went to. And, and that's where I go. I just keep my mind on you. And, 
you will keep me in perfect peace. Then I can sleep. Then I can think better and operate better. And when there are issues of trust, Proverbs chapter 3, verses 5 and 6, trust in the Lord with all your heart. Don't even lean on your own understanding. In all your ways, submit to him. He'll make your pastor. He'll take care of you. You just trust in him. Do the right thing. Trust in him. When it comes to life choices, Psalm chapter 1, blessed is the one who does not walk and step with the wicked or stand in the way of sinners or sit in the company of mockers. Get, Get out of that seat. Get away from that. But his delight is in the law of the Lord. Get that. His delight. I have found myself, I'll be real honest with you here, I have obeyed the law of the Lord and I think the law of the Lord, but do I delight in the law of the Lord? There's the question. When you get to that point, then you will sing, you're a good, good father. That's who you are. That's who you are. And I am loved by you. That's who I am. See, I'm not convinced we're always thinking... He's a good, good father, and that we're loved by him. But you think about it for a moment. You're perfect in all of your ways. You are a good, good father. You love me better than I ever deserve. And I am loved by you. That's who I am. So I want to walk in the way that is righteous, but that's not all. I want to delight in your, in your law. I want to meditate on it day and night. I want to stay there. And eventually, you're going to be at a place in your life where people hurt you. And when they hurt you, you will not go to Psalm 37. You will run to Psalm 37. Do not fret because of evildoers. I don't go to this passage. I run to this passage. Don't be envious of people who do wrong. Why? Because their life is like grass that's going to wither. Green plants soon die. Instead, trust the Lord and do good. And, you know, I tell that to people all the time, but I'm telling you, I have to tell it to Dave all the time. You trust in the Lord and you do good, regardless of what other people do. You trust in the Lord and you do good, and, and you'll dwell on the land. You'll have safe passages. The Lord will take care of you. Why? Because you're going to delight in the Lord. He'll take care of you. He'll give you the desires of your heart. And I go back to it again. You're a good, good father. That's who you are. That's who you are. And I am loved by you. That's who I am. You're going to demolish those arguments. You get this? And then you're going to take those thoughts captive and you're going to replace them with God's word. And when you find that shift happening in your head, that's the mind shift happening. When that happens, you'll be living for a higher purpose. You'll be living for the purpose you were called and designed for. You'll be living for a higher and and better and noble cause. And there'll be lasting joy and greater satisfaction. Why? Because your head is in another place. You're in the mind shift. You are created in the image of God. That's what you're designed for. Get that. That's what you're designed for. Let's bow together for prayer. Lord, you are a good, good father. And we are loved by you. But this shift work in our minds has to happen. And and Lord, it's war. It is war. Demolish the arguments. Would you help us to do that? Help us to take captive every thought. May it be replaced with the word of God so it is all in compliance to Christ's life. I pray for brothers and sisters in the room. Lord, would you give us some early wins this week? Would you give us some victory so we have confidence 
that we know that greater is the one who is in us than the one who is in the world. And so we'll move ahead with confidence. Some in the room just need to trust Christ as Savior and Lord. And so your, your prayer isn't for early wins. Your, your prayer is, Lord, I, I need the Savior. I need Christ in my life. I need him to be my Savior. I, he died for my sin. I, I need supernatural help. Would you save me? That's your prayer. Scripture says, all who call on the Lord, he answers, he'll, he'll save you. He's not willing that any should perish, but all come to repentance and faith. Do the work in our hearts, I pray. Would you please, Lord, thank you. We know you're out for our good. May we see that and run towards you, we pray. In the name of Christ, the church says, amen. <laughs>